This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast and God bless. October 21st to Sunday night, 6 p.m. We're going to invite you to be a part of our night of worship. We're going to do something a little bit different this time. We are going to use children in our choir. So if you're any age child, if you're interested in singing with mom or dad or coming and being a part of what we're doing, sing. There it is right there. We want you to sing. <laughs> we want you to be a part of that. Uh, we're going to do practice tonight. If you're interested, at 6 o'clock tonight here in the worship center. You can see Stacy if you have some questions about that. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we just thank you for this time of study. We thank you... For the time of praise and worship, Lord, we just pray that you would invade our hearts right now. Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we open up the text of Scripture and read about your promises, Father, and your power and your provision and all the things you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would just open the eyes of our heart we may understand. We may take what we've learned, Father, apply it to our lives, be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, and leave here different, Father, so we can... Share Christ with the world. It's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. You know, there are certain events throughout history that have a profound impact on the world. My grandmother died a number of years back. When she died, she was 95 years old, born in the early part of the 1900s. And I often thought, as my grandmother was getting older and older, all the things she had seen in her life. I mean, if you were born in the early part of the 1900s and lived 95 years, you would have seen a lot of stuff. She saw two world wars. She saw the Great Depression. She saw nuclear power discovered and harnessed and used in warfare. She saw communism come about and eventually collapse. She saw the space shuttle disaster. And of course, after she was gone just a few years ago, 9-11, we think about these events that shape history. And oftentimes, these events become for us touch points. They shape and mold us, and they change us oftentimes in the way we view the world, and sometimes they change the world. 9-11 did exactly that. But there are moments in history that form the context of our lives. And we're going to take a look this morning at one moment in history that for the Jewish people, I'll argue, was probably the most important moment in their history. It's the study of the Passover. Now, we started a series several weeks ago that we're calling The Great Story, and it's a story of the picture of Christ all through the Bible. And we've been arguing there's this thread that runs from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the end of the New Testament. And it's the picture of Jesus Christ and God's plan of redemption. And ultimately, it's the story of God saving His people through Jesus Christ. Now, it was neat for me last week, if you missed it, Randy Presley, our new associate pastor, preached. And it was really neat for me to to sit and to hear a sermon in this vein and in this thought and in this line about God's great story about all that God has done and all that God has, has seen and all the ways that God has provided. And Randy talked about Abraham and Isaac. It was neat to hear Randy preach for the first time. He did a great job. But I, I joked with the 930 service. It was really neat for me because for the first time I got to see Randy work. He's not just sitting around surfing the web. Which, that's a man, that's a, that's a step forward. I'm the new guy. I don't know anybody yet. Okay, all right, yeah, okay. No, I'm just kidding. He did a great job. We're excited to have him on board, excited for the sermon he preached last week. We're going to continue this morning our study of the great story. So I want to give you a little bit of background. If you've missed a week or weren't here a couple weeks, I want to catch you up to speed before we delve into our topic and our passage this morning. We looked a couple weeks ago at creation, and we saw the calling of Adam and Eve. God placed upon them a calling, be fruitful and multiply. 
He carried that out as we studied the fall and we, we, we saw that God had provided a way out for them, a, a, a means of salvation, kind of a picture of who Christ was going to be. We saw Abraham and Isaac last week. We saw that Abraham had taken Isaac and bound him and had the knife ready to sacrifice him according to what God called him to do. And then out of the, uh, 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 the thicket, out of the bush, God provided a ram. We saw for the first time God provided uh, uh, an atonement, something to stand in our place for the sacrifice. So we, we begin to see this picture of a Messiah, but we're still not sure from our study in the Old Testament exactly what that Messiah is going to be. Now we know, because we have thousands of years of history in the Old and the New Testament. But for the people living in Old Testament times, they were getting this picture. These little pieces of the puzzle put together to form this great story. So we're going to continue that study this morning in the book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Now I need to catch us up to speed a little bit from where we were last week with Abraham to where we're going to be this week because a lot happens through the book of Genesis, the, the last half of the book of Genesis. So I need to catch us up and I've got a little, I've got a little uh, family tree of Abraham. Would you pull that up for me? There it is. Now it looks real complicated and I've got a laser pointer to make it simple. How about that? So, here's how it goes. Last week, Randy talked about Abraham. Abraham through Sarah had Isaac. We talked about that. He mentioned Ishmael, of course. Isaac... The line goes through Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Now, we're following the track here from how we get to Abraham last week to where we're going to be this week. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. You may remember the story. Jacob has 12 sons. These 12 sons are going to form the 12 tribes of Israel. You may recognize some of the names. Through Judah right here, Christ is going to come. That's going to be the lineage of Jesus Christ right there. Okay, you may recognize the name Levi, the priestly group. Those were the priests. Joseph is very important for us because Joseph is going to link us directly from Abraham last week down through the story of his brothers, we're going to see here in just a second, into Egypt. So here's the story. You can take that off, Kevin. Thank you. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau, Jacob's 12 sons. Joseph is one of those 12. Genesis chapter 37. If you wanted to, you don't flip there now, but if you wanted to go and read about Genesis chapter 37, you could read about the story of Joseph. Joseph was the brother who the other ones didn't like. You may remember the story. His father looked upon him favorably. In fact, Joseph's brothers didn't like him so badly, they sold him into slavery. Joseph is sold into slavery. He's taken to Egypt. This is going to be important for us. When he goes to Egypt, he's put in Potiphar's household. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him. He's taken to prison. He is able to interpret dreams in prison. Pharaoh hears about him. Long story short, very long story Pharaoh hears about him, brings him, and eventually puts him in charge, second in charge of all of Egypt. So Joseph, because God has blessed him and looked favorably upon him and shown him grace and mercy, Joseph foresees a coming famine. And so Joseph tells Pharaoh, we need to prepare for this famine. This is the end of Genesis. We need to prepare for this famine. We need to store up grain. The Pharaoh listens to him. He saves Egypt. In the process, his brothers come back because they're living in a period of famine. They come to Egypt to buy the grain. They're reunited with their brother Joseph. And now all of a sudden, all 12 brothers are living in Egypt. That's very important. That's how we get from Abraham all the way down to Joseph. The 12 tribes of Israel are now living in Egypt. That's very important for us to understand. Now, we're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. We've tied last week to this week. We took just a couple minutes very fast. We've gone from Abraham now to Joseph, eventually into Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 says this. Now Joseph, that's the Joseph we just talked about, and all his brothers, those are all the brothers we talked about, and all that generation died. 
So Joseph, all his brothers, they move to Egypt. Eventually they die in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, now verse 7. But the Israelites, remember the 12 tribes of, of Israel that we talked about? All those descendants, again, these are ultimately descendants from Abraham. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied. Now, if we were in a Sunday school class, I'd ask somebody, where have we seen that passage before? Genesis with Adam and Eve, right? That's God's command to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. We see it being carried out now through Abraham, eventually through the children of Israel. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. They became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. So the children of Israel, through Joseph, come to Egypt. They eventually die out, the, 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 the 12 uh, brothers. But through their descendants, they're fruitful, they multiply, they become exceedingly numerous. Now it's interesting, when the, when the people of Israel eventually leave Egypt, the Bible tells us there were approximately 600,000 men. Now if each man had a wife, that's 1.2 million. If each family had two children, that's 2.4 million Israelites living currently in Egypt. Now we would imagine that most of these families would have more than two children. So it's conceivable for us to think this exceedingly numerous number right here is probably closer to three or four million Israelites living in Egypt. Now here's the problem. You've got all these Israelites, several million of them, living in Egypt, and the pharaohs become fearful of their numbers. And they say, wait, there's so many of these people, there's so many of these people, we need to enslave them because if we let them continue to grow, they're going to outnumber us. Eventually they'll take over. So we're going to enslave them, put them into captivity. Now, 400 years moves along between the time Joseph came and this point we're going to pick up now in Exodus chapter 2. So here we are in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. The people of Israel are greatly outnumbering now, are close to outnumbering the Egyptians. They're in captivity. They're slaves. Exodus chapter 2, verse 22. 23, during that long period, now that's the long period of growth for the children of Israel. They're numbering now in the several millions. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Now verse 24, God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now again, we're tying this together here. Adam and Eve... Abraham and Isaac, God made the promise and the covenant with Abraham that even if Abraham wasn't faithful, God was going to be. So God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Verse 25, so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now the book of Exodus is filled with incredible stories. There's so many things we could talk about. There's so many ways we could preach this and so many things we could study. We could do an entire series just on the Exodus, just on the first few chapters of the book of Exodus. But this morning, I want to draw your attention to three things that I think are going to help us carry this story through. It's going to help us understand this great story in a little more detail as we progress through the passage of Scripture. And the first thing I want you to see from this teaching we're going to understand this morning, from the beginning portion of Exodus, is number one, I want to see God's promise. I want to see and understand, number one, God's promise. Now, you may remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God gave them two commands, be fruitful and multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it. God says, basically, you need to grow. You need to continue to expand. You need to take my glory and my name into all the earth. There's this sense of this ever-increasing sphere of influence with Adam and Eve. Now, they dropped the ball. They sinned. They were removed from the garden. Genesis chapter 12, God goes to Abraham. We saw that last week. And he says to Abraham, I want you now to increase. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the world through you. All the people of the earth will now be blessed through you. I want you to grow and multiply. 
And we see in this process of God calling these people to grow and to multiply and to share His name and to bring His glory to all the earth, we, we begin to see this picture of a Savior, of a coming Messiah. Now, it's a veiled picture. It's just a couple little pieces of the puzzle. We don't fully understand it yet. But we remember Genesis 3.15, that God is speaking to the, the enemy, to Satan, and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We see for the first time the picture of the gospel, the picture of Jesus Christ. Although it's veiled, we don't fully understand it yet. We see that something's coming. Abraham and Isaac. Isaac goes up with Abraham to the top of the mountain. Abraham binds his son, ties him up, has the knife ready to sacrifice based on the calling of God. God stops Abraham and he provides in the thicket in the bush a ram to take the place of Isaac. So we, we begin to see, again, this is, a, this is the beginning of this great story of God's plan of redemption. This picture of a Messiah, of God's promises that he's going to bless through Adam and Eve. He's going to bless through Abraham. He's going to bless through, through Isaac, through Jacob, on down through Joseph and the people of Israel. It's interesting as, as we think about God's promises and, and being trustworthy. I, I think about my little son who's four years old. Now, for, for me, some of you guys may have experienced this. But for me, having three girls and then having a little boy is kind of a really fun thing, right? Because now I can legitimately go down the boy toy aisle at Walmart and not feel strange. I don't have to make something up now. You know, Jonas, he wants to look at trucks, you know. So I'm pushing buttons with him. You know, I'm pushing all the cars and, hey, let's go look at this. So one of the things that Joseph, that Joseph, listen to me, Jonas likes to do is wrestle. He loves to wrestle, which is cool for me. I mean, you know, the girls like to do that a little bit, but, you know, he's a little boy, man. He wants to wrestle. Now, Dad's getting a little bit older, so Dad's got to get a couple of pillows on the floor when he wrestles. I like to have my head propped up on some pillows, right? So I'll say something like this. Hey, hey Jonas, you want to wrestle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he'll run to the couch, and he'll start grabbing pillows off, right? Then he knows that's what he's got to do first. Make my spot on the floor, son, so I'm comfortable. Then we'll wrestle, right? So he throws the pillows. And the way we play our game is I lay down on the pillows, and then he backs up as far as he physically can from me. Usually he's in the middle of the living room, so he'll back up into the kitchen all the way against the far wall of the kitchen, so he's still got eye contact with me. And so I'll lay down, and I'll make sure I've got all my pillows in place, and I'll look at Jonas, and I'll give him the thumbs up. And when he sees me give the thumbs up, he gives me the thumbs up, and that means it's time to go, and he takes off running. And he t- it's a full sprint for a four-year-old. It's the funniest thing. Man, he's just running as hard. And when he gets about three feet from me, he just launches himself into this, this flying dive. It's like he's parallel to the ground. He's just flying. Just launches. Now, you know what I do every time. I catch him, right? I catch him. And he knows that when he takes off running, no matter how hard he runs or how hard he jumps or how far he jumps, I'm going to catch him. Why? Because he trusts me. I've kind of made this promise to him. I didn't write it down or say it to him, but I've kind of promised him, hey, buddy, if you'll run hard and dive towards me, I'm going to catch you. See, God has made this promise to us. That no matter where we are, no matter what we've been through, he's going to catch us. You understand that? We can trust him. We can place our faith in God. Here's the amazing part, though. God is going to demonstrate his promises and his trustworthiness to the people of Israel in captivity in Egypt. He's going to demonstrate his promises and the fact that he can be trusted all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. But here's the beautiful thing. He demonstrates to us still today that he can still be trusted. You understand that? God is faithful to us. Now, I want to let that soak in just for a second because I think sometimes we just we miss those sort of things. We forget that the God of the universe is faithful to us. Even when we blow it, He still loves us. You understand that? 
Even when Abraham made mistakes, even when Moses made mistakes, even when the children of Israel made mistakes, God was, even in their sinfulness, faithful. He can be trusted. You say, well, that's interesting, Adam, but what sort of, what sort of things can I trust God with? What sort of promises has God made to me now? I mean, he promised things to the children of Israel. He promised things to the Old Testament. What sort of promises does God make to me now? Well, I started doing some research this week, and I knew there were a lot of promises, and I thought of several off the top of my head. But it was amazing to me as I started doing some research in the New Testament of all the promises God has actually made to us. All the things in Scripture that He promises to us. So I found a couple that I, that I thought would fit nicely in our context today. Did you know that God promises us through Jesus Christ? He promises us rest. Anybody here think they need a little more rest every now and then? You need some additional rest? Right, we could use a little rest in our society. Right? Here, here's what Matthew 11, 28 and 29 says. This is Christ talking. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I bet some of you were weary and burdened this week. I just wonder, the last time you were weary and burdened, did the first thing you think, do I need to run to Christ? Because he can give me rest. Christ says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ promises us strength. Strength, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Speaking to Paul, God says, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ promises us salvation. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, God promised the children of Israel things and He could be trusted. He was faithful. God has promised us things still today and He can be trusted. He is faithful. So we see God's promise still to these people. Even though they have forgotten it and not living their lives according to all the things He called them to do. And even though they're going to make mistakes, even though they're going to be sinful, we see in the midst of all these things God's promise. Well, let's jump down now to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Here's the scene. Moses, who we haven't yet talked about, grows up in Egypt. He grows up in the Pharaoh's house. He eventually leaves the Pharaoh's house and he goes off into the desert for 40 years. And he tends his father-in-law's sheep. And there's a moment in history for Moses when he's tending his father's sheep that he comes across on the other side of this mountain. He comes across this bush. And the Bible says that the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And so we see this, this instance where God is going to speak to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, beginning of verse 4. He's standing at the burning bush. And the Bible says in Exodus 3 verse 4, When the Lord saw... That he had gone over to look, speaking of Moses, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Same response from Abraham last week. You remember that? God calls, here I am. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God says. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look God. Now, there's something very interesting happening here. We're going to jump down here in just a second to verse 19. There's something very interesting happening here. The children of Israel had been living in captivity for 400 years. Let's keep that in mind. For 400 years, they'd not heard from God. God has not spoken, at least according to Scripture. The Bible doesn't give us any instance where God spoke directly to the children of Israel. So when they began to cry out to Him, to pray out to Him for help, He remembered, of course, He had remembered His covenant with them. So when we read this when we read this, this, this context here, when we read this account of Moses standing at the burning bush, it's the first time scripturally in about 400 years that God has spoken to the people. So when Moses hears from God, 
And God says, I'm the father. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. It's a very powerful moment for Moses. Now skip down to verse 19 of Exodus chapter 3. Listen to what God says. God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. Now we've seen God's promise. God can be trusted. God is faithful. The second thing we see in this passage of Scripture is God's power. We've seen God's promise. Number two, we see God's power. Now God is going to demonstrate his power to the people of Egypt and to the Israelites by a series of ten plagues. Now here's the interesting thing about these plagues. Before I spent some time this week studying these plagues, I had always thought about the plagues in, in this context. I thought, well, here are the people of, of Egypt living in captivity. Here are the Egyptians. And these plagues are brought down upon the Egyptian people, and they're so horrific, they're so terrible, that the people of Egypt eventually say, and especially the Pharaoh, eventually says, you know, we just had enough. We've had enough of this. Israelites, you just go. Just get out of here. Now, there's certainly this sense that the people of Egypt kind of got tired of the plagues and they suffered, and eventually they said, that's enough, we want you to get out of here. There is certainly a part of that that is true. That's certainly a part of what they said and how they acted. But here's something I didn't know about the plagues. The interesting thing about the, the, the Egyptians is that they, they worshipped a lot of different gods. In fact, they had hundreds of gods that they actually worshipped. Their gods were tied into nature. So when something would happen naturally, they would either thank their god or they would believe that their god was punishing them in some way. And it's interesting, as you take a look at the, the pictures of all the gods of Egypt, they're oftentimes portrayed by the Egyptian people. They're portrayed as a human body with the head of an animal. So you see the god of, 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 a certain god of nature portrayed as the, the body of a human and the head of a uh, frog. Or the head of a fly or of a beetle or the head of a cow. They, they tied all these gods into natural things. Now here's the interesting thing about these plagues. When God would strike down the people of Egypt with these natural plagues... What he's saying, in essence, to the people of Egypt and to the people of Israel is that your natural gods, Egypt, are not strong enough to stop me from bringing these plagues upon you. You understand that? God says, your gods are not strong enough to keep me from bringing these plagues upon you. So one example, the, 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 the ninth plague is, is the plague of darkness. God says, I'm going to bring darkness upon all of Egypt for three days. And the Bible says it's so dark, in fact, these people can't even move. Can you imagine? You ever been in a room somewhere it's so dark you literally can't see the, the hand in front of your face? That's the darkness of Egypt for three days. Well, here's what we have to understand about Egypt. One of their main gods was Ra. Ra was the sun god. Now, that's interesting. God said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring darkness upon you for three days to prove to you that Ra is not as powerful as I am. You understand that? So each one of these plagues had a specific reason for not only the Egyptians... But the Israelites living in captivity understand that the Egyptian gods are not powerful enough, but the true and living God is. So here are the plagues. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Exodus chapter 7 is where we're going to start. I'm not going to read specifically. I'm just going to give you the plagues to kind of go through this so you understand where we're going. First plague, the Nile River turns to blood. The second plague, the frogs come out of the Nile. They infest the entire country. They die and they, they, they leave a stench all over the country. The third plague, gnats. The fourth plague, great swarm of flies. The fifth plague, the cattle and the livestock infected with a deadly disease. The sixth plague, all the people of Egypt and, and the animals that were living there are, are inflicted with these terrible sores, these boils. The seventh plague, hail and, and rain and terrible storms come upon the people and destroy the crops. The eighth plague, huge swarms of locusts 
destroy the remaining crops. The ninth plague is the plague of darkness, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. The idea that Ra was not powerful enough. Now, the tenth plague, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, I want to set aside just for a few minutes because I want to examine again this idea of the power of God. Now, God says in scriptures all through Exodus that I'm going to bring these plagues and I'm going to bring these plagues for one reason, so that my name will be made known. That's what he says. In other words, I want the people of Egypt and I want the people of Israel to see and understand my power. Now, in order for God to do this, he uses a phrase over and over and over in Exodus. The phrase is, I am. Now, you've probably seen it before. The first time he uses it is in Exodus Chapter 3, verse 13, he's speaking to Moses. And Moses says, well, God, what if I go to these people and they don't know who you are? So Exodus three fourteen says this. God said to Moses, you can tell them, I am. Going to go to verse 14. Yeah, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now that phrase, I am, is so important because God's going to use it 21 different times in the book of Exodus to explain his power. To explain exactly who it is. So I'm going to read through a couple of them. You don't have to look there. But I'm going to read through a couple of them just to, just to make the point of what God's trying to do here. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you as my own people. I will be, my God, be your God and you will know that I am the Lord your God. Exodus chapter 6, verse 8, And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to your, to your father Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. You see that? You see what God's doing here? Now, this is going to be important. Hang on to this idea. God uses this phrase over and over. I am. I am. I am. God says, through my name, through my power, my name is going to be made known to all the earth. And through these plagues, you're going to know that I am the Lord your God. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing right now. We can't do this in our Bibles, but if we could circle this section in Exodus. And by the way, God uses the word I am all through the Old Testament. But if we could circle these I am's in the Old Testament and draw a line all the way to the New Testament, I want to read a couple of very interesting passages in the book of John. Now, we find this in other parts of the New Testament as well, but I want you to listen to Christ. And what Christ says in John chapter 6, here's what he says, listen. Christ says in John chapter 6, now remember, what phrase did God use? I am, remember? John chapter 6, verse 35, Christ says, I am the bread of life. John chapter 8, verse 12, Christ says, I am the light of the world. John chapter 10, verse 7, Christ says, I am the door. <laughs> John chapter 10, verse 11, Christ says, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, verse 25, Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, that, you see what he's doing here? John chapter 14, verse 6, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 15, verse 1, Christ says, I am the vine. Over and over again, Christ uses this phrase, I am. Now you say, wait a minute, Adam. You're, you're jumping to some conclusions here, right? I mean, God used this phrase, I am. But Christ is simply describing himself right here. I mean, they, they, you, you can't really make a connection between what God said and using I am to show his power and his glory and his majesty and what Christ was doing. Well, let me read for you John chapter 8, verse 58. I think we have this one on the screen. John, Christ is speaking to Jewish leaders. And here's what Jesus says to them. He says, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, what does that say? I am. You see that? Now, now, here's what we need to understand. Don't go to the next slide yet, Kevin. Here's what we need to understand. If Christ is speaking to the Jewish leaders, and he's trying to make this connection between I am 
Christ the same as I am God in the Old Testament. He's ultimately saying that I'm God. You understand what he's doing there? Now, the Jewish people would have picked up on this, right? They would have picked up very very quickly on the fact that Jesus is making this connection between himself and God. Now, look at what they do in verse 59. John chapter 8, verse 59. At this, they, those are the Jewish leaders, picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because they said he was blaspheming. He's claiming to be God, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, it's interesting because the world we live in now sometimes will say something like this. Christ never claimed to be God. That was something made up at the Council of Nicaea or sometime in the 3rd or the 4th century. Jesus never made a claim to be God. Well, he made a claim to be God in John chapter 8 by using the word I am. And he used it over and over again. And when he did it and when he said it and when he explained it, the Jewish people understood that he was drawing this connecting point between who he was and who God was of the Old Testament. God demonstrated his power by using the phrase I am and bringing the plagues upon the people of Egypt in the Old Testament times. Jesus has demonstrated his power by claiming I am and showing miraculous signs and wonders in the New Testament. So we've seen God's promises to his people that he's faithful, that he can be trusted. We've seen God's power through the plagues, through claiming to be I am, used over and over in the Old Testament. The third thing I want to look at this morning, we've seen God's promises, we've seen God's power. The third thing I want to see this morning is God's provision. Now God has done this interesting thing so far in our study. He's done it in Genesis chapter 3. He did it in the story of Abraham and Isaac. He's going to do it again today. God is always providing a way out for his people. Now, by the way, we skipped the story of Noah because we just didn't have time to do it. But you ought to go back and read how God provides a way out for his people. Right? In the midst of destruction and turmoil, God provides a way out. It's a picture again of salvation. But God has always given us a provision. He's always given us a way out to save us in the midst of sinfulness. Now, the tenth plague that I mentioned a few minutes ago is the death plague. God said, I'm going to basically send the death angel. Every firstborn in Egypt is going to die. Now, here's a very interesting distinction we make. For the first nine plagues, the children of Israel didn't have to do anything different. God just protected them. He didn't send darkness their way. He didn't send flies. He didn't send gnats. He didn't send frogs. He didn't do all the things to them that he did to the people of Egypt. So they were protected because God protected them. For the first time at the tenth plague, the children of Israel are required to do something different. They're required to do something so that God will protect them. Now look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. God says, I'm going to send the death angel. The death angel is going to kill every firstborn in Egypt. And the only way you can survive, here's the provision for you. Now I want you to follow what God's going to do here. God's going to say, here's the provision for you, children of Israel. You're going to take a lamb. Now, here's what he says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. The animals that you choose, the lamb that you choose, must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood... And put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 give some specifics about how they're supposed to cook the lamb. How they're supposed to eat it. How they're supposed to prepare unleavened bread because they don't have time for the yeast to rise. or getting out of town the next morning. They're supposed to prepare bitter herbs to remind them of the bitter taste of slavery. They're supposed to take their cloak and literally tuck it in their belt. Put their shoes on. Get ready to go because God's about to do something. Now verse 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. On that same night, God says, I will pass through Egypt, 
and I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. There's a reference again to the gods of Egypt. I am, there's his phrase, the Lord. You see what he's doing? He's saying, ultimately, I'm going to bring this final plague. It's going to prove to the people of Egypt that I am the Lord, and they are not powerful over me. Now, verse 13, here's the way out. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, this is probably the most important moment in the history of the Israelite people. Now, we know it's important because the Old Testament keeps referring back to it over and over again. It refers back to the Old Testament. It refers back to these plagues. It refers back to the idea of the Passover and the Exodus. It's still a ceremony that's celebrated even today. So I want to take a look just for a couple of minutes at some items, some elements of the Passover. And I want, again, I want to make the point to you. God has begun to provide for us a picture. You understand that? God's providing for us a picture of the Messiah. We know that he's going to, from Genesis 3, he's going to fight the devil. He's going he's to be uh, injured in the process, but he's ultimately going to prevail. We know from the story of Abraham and Isaac that something's going to take the place for us. It's going to stand in our place. Now we notice from this position in Exodus chapter 5 from the Passover, we begin to learn some other things about the coming Messiah. Here's something we learn. We need to understand him as some sort of a lamb. Now, it's interesting when we think about this because we saw last week with Abraham and Isaac that the lamb was used as a substitute. God says, I'm going to use this lamb and I'm going to pour my wrath upon the lamb because we're going to slay the lamb and use his blood over the door. Now, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. The Bible says this, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You see that? One scholar described it like this. He said, the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament Passover instruction is to point forward to Christ, to the purpose of his death, memorialized in the ritual of the Lord's Supper that now replaces the Passover, and also to the unity of those accepted by him as his people, his body. So again, we're getting a picture here. We're getting a picture of a lamb. Not only does it have to be a lamb, but it's got to be without blemish, without defect. You say, why does it matter if it's without blemish? Why does it matter that it's a, it's a perfect lamb? Because we didn't want the, the people of Israel, God didn't want the people of Israel to take the, the lamb that was about to die or the lamb that was injured and give it to God. They wanted them to give God their best, right? Let's take the best that we have. Let's take the best lamb that we have and give that to God, a lamb that's perfect without defect. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers. Now watch this. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, Christ lived his life sinlessly. He committed no sins. He was the perfect sacrifice for us. So we see this idea of the picture of a lamb, a picture of a lamb without defects, but ultimately a picture of a lamb who gives up his blood to save others. We see a picture of a lamb who slaughtered the blood of the lamb, painted across the doorpost. When the death angel comes to the door, he sees the blood and he passes over those people. So let me summarize it for you, see if this sounds familiar to you. We've got the blood of a lamb given in order to save the people from death. Now what's that a picture of? Now we see it very clearly as, as a picture of Christ. For the people in the Old Testament, it was a process they were building up to, leading up to, understanding more and more clearly exactly who Jesus Christ was. 
For us, we have the whole picture of Scripture, but for them, they didn't understand this. It's slowly being revealed to them. But here's the the beautiful part of this picture. The blood of the Lamb saved the people from death all those centuries ago. But I want you to watch this. Here's where it matters for us. The blood of the Lamb still saves people from death today. See, it's Jesus Christ. And because of what Christ did, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, because of the blood of the Lamb, He stood in our place. He took the wrath of the Father for us. He bore our sins. And because of all He did, God forgives us of our sins because of Christ on the cross. Now, we've seen God's promises. We've seen God's power. We've seen God's provision. We've seen that God has provided a way out, a, a salvation for His people. And He did it in this context all through the blood of a lamb. It's a beautiful picture of what happened in the Passover, but it's still a beautiful picture of all that Christ does for us still today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity of study your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have painted such a clear, beautiful picture for us, Lord, of exactly who you are and what you've accomplished and what you've given for us, Lord. So I just pray that as we sing praises to your name during this time of invitation, Father, we, we would again understand your promises and, and your power and your provision that you've give to, given to us. And then, Lord, I pray that you would just Speak to our hearts in mighty and powerful ways that your name will be glorified, your name will be honored in all the things we say and do. It's in Jesus' precious and powerful name that we pray. Amen. You could stand. We're going to give you a few minutes if you want to come and spend some time at the altar in prayer. If you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want to join this church, this is your time now as we sing together. Thank you. Podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia, or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless you.